Well, good morning, afternoon, or evening. Welcome again to the Five Day Reading Plan podcast. I'm Lance Ward, and I'll be taking us through some of the things we read in this week's readings. Remember, you can download a copy of this plan in the description of this podcast. You can also find it at fivedaybiblereading.com. Well, we just finished week 50, and in this week's readings were Nehemiah 10 through 13, the prophet Malachi, or as one person refers to him, the great Italian prophet Malachi, also Job 1 through 11, Psalms 2, 29, and 99, and Revelation 8 through 12. In Nehemiah 10, we see a commitment to return Israel to what and who she was meant to be. This would include a return to laws on marriage, Sabbath observance, giving, especially towards sacrifices and observances, and in this spirit of giving, putting forth the best of what they have so as not to neglect the house of their God. In chapter 12, verses 27 and following, the finished wall is dedicated with praise and thanksgiving, a public acknowledgement of God's help. Without him, neither a return to the land nor a successful rebuilding of the wall would ever have happened. I don't know about you, but one thing I appreciate about being active in the church is those times when we corporately celebrate what he has done. Though we no longer observe law-based holidays or feasts, celebrations of what God is doing in and among us should never be neglected. Why is that? Perhaps because our greatest problem is not always unbelief, but sometimes it's just forgetfulness. It is so easy to forget God's constant activity and to recognize both the small and the big things he is doing to build his own kingdom. As we near the end of one year in the Bible, maybe you can take some time to go back and remember all the things you've learned this year reading through the scripture and then celebrate that somehow. In this particular instance in Nehemiah, notice the cause and maybe results of this thanksgiving and celebration when it says, On that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. In chapter 13, the law is read publicly to the people, and an idea going all the way back to the institution of the law itself. And it begins with an almost instant application. The people right then and there are to be set apart from those around them who are not among God's people. After this, Nehemiah has to do some hard things, and we see again the pains of spiritual leadership. Sometimes a leader must do what the people, for whatever reason, refuse to do. In this case, Nehemiah not only responds to Eliashib's special treatment of Tobiah, but also rebukes the people who had already gone back on their covenant commitments from just a couple of chapters earlier. As I read this, I think of how often we speak of God's love, but we often neglect His holiness. Nehemiah reminds us that the two cannot be separated. I also noticed how the book ends with two prayers of Nehemiah. His unceasing prayer is a thread that runs through this book. And I ask myself, does my life show the same kind of unceasing prayer? Do I find myself talking to God off and on during the day? That seemed to be what it looked like in Nehemiah's life. Well, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It is one of three what we call post-exilic prophets, the prophets that wrote after the exile. The other two are Haggai and Zechariah, although some scholars debate the time of Malachi's writing. As in past prophets, you may have noted the prevalence of this identity of God, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. 
You may have also noticed the prevailing theme of the fear of God in chapter 1, verses 6 and 14, chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 3, verses 5 and 16, and chapter 4, verse 2. And maybe this is because at the very root of the audience's issues, there was a lack of reverence. Malachi reminds me of the last parts of Nehemiah where God's people are unaligned with God himself. In Malachi, God's people question his love. They profane his worship. They weary the Lord with their empty words. They rob God by withholding their tithes and offerings. We can infer from this spiritual stinginess that this is a lack of trust since God challenges them to test him on this. What a great reminder that an absence of generosity is not always due to poverty. It rarely is, but it's often due to simply distrust. Few things are more a more tangible indicator of our trust in God than what we do with our money and our possessions. And in chapter 3, verse 7, a promise is raised that is repeated in the prophets. Return to me, and I will return to you. God's heart throughout the prophets is not to judge, but to reconcile. Notice how Malachi ends with the promise of Elijah, probably a reference in hindsight to the advent of John the Baptist 400 years later. John's voice would be the next prophetic voice God's people would hear, and he will be the bridge ushering in their long-awaited Messiah. Psalm 2, which is also known as a messianic messianic psalm, was an appropriate read alongside this, don't you think? It talks about this coming king who will come, he will rule, and those who oppose him will have no chance. It's also an excellent psalm for this Advent season, isn't it? Goes well with that great hymn we sing at Christmas, Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Well, in the book of Job... Though Job is the last Old Testament book we will read in this plan, many think it may have been the first book or among the first books written in Old Testament literature. Job is a wisdom book, and wisdom books don't always align with our assumptions or experiences, and that's why they're called wisdom books. Where Proverbs offers general maxims that often hold up, laws of the universe, if you will, that put forth cause-effect relationships— Job and Ecclesiastes are quite different. They remind us that sometimes there are exceptions to such rules. All Proverbs and no Job or Ecclesiastes, therefore, can lead to disillusionment rather than wisdom. And Job is certainly startling to our senses. No one on earth was as aligned with God as Job was, yet no one suffered as he did. To Job, this would bring confusion, disillusionment, and even conflict between not only Job and God, but also Job and his friends. One of the things that has always struck me is Job's initial response to the catastrophes that came one after another after another. In response to those, it says in chapter 1, verse 20, he fell to the ground and worshiped. I hope as you read this, you asked yourself what I have asked. What is worship? Do we only worship God when things are working out, or do we find ways to exalt Him and worship Him even in the worst of times? At the end of chapter 2, Job is stripped of almost everything, but one thing he still has is friends. At first, these friends model something very comforting to this innocent sufferer. They simply sit with him in silence for seven days and nights. When these seven days end, Job is the first to speak, and he laments heavily in chapter 3, which ends much like the end of Psalm 88. And at that point, 
Job's friends begin to talk. If you are making observations, try and pay attention to the arguments of each friend. One of the main problems with trials is that we almost never know when they will end. And so in the silence, well-meaning people may try to fill it, to speak into the situation. Sometimes this is very helpful. Other times it's not, which will be the case with Job's friends. There is no discernible reason for Job's suffering. So in the mystery of it all, his friends feel the need to come up with answers and explanations. Now, some of the things they say can do contain truths about life and God that are not necessarily wrong, but in this case, they are either irrelevant or inappropriate to Job's situation. One thing you see his friends say more than once is along the lines of, well, you must have done something wrong. But we readers know from chapters 1 and 2 that that's not the case at all. This is not a cause-effect relationship. It is something finite humans simply can't explain. But that doesn't stop Job's friends, does it? And truth be told, we've probably done the same thing in our own lives. We have meant well, but we've been wrong. There's an important lesson for us here. To take general truths and apply them to every specific situation can be a misuse of truth. It doesn't mean that things are untrue, but it could mean that they are neither helpful nor appropriate to certain situations. Eliphaz argues from his experience in chapter 4, verse 8, which tells him that this suffering must be self-inflicted. Somehow, Job must be reaping what he has sown. His recommendation to Job? Take your appeal to God. Job basically responds in chapter 6, Your words are not helpful. Tell me exactly what I've done, rather than rebuke me, he exclaims. And in chapter 7, Job refuses to stop lamenting. Have you ever known someone like that? Their pain has run so deep that they go on and on and lament. It really is challenging to be patient at such times, and there are certainly times when God does call us to speak into those situations. But when I read of Job's friends, I am tempted to ask myself if I would not have responded the same way. In chapter 8, Bildad speaks. His basic argument seems to be, God cannot be unjust, which is true. So you must have done something, and you must confess it, which is false. Interestingly, Job admits that God is behind it all in chapters 9 and 10, that God is sovereign, and yet Job cannot understand why and continues to spiral in this misery. Well, we ended our our week in chapter 11 where Zophar speaks. His argument is a formula. If you do X, then God will do Y. As I mentioned earlier, one reason why this book is so helpful is that we live in a cause-effect world often. Sometimes we, we think of that life can be run by certain formulas. But sometimes the effects in our lives can't always be traced to any causes that we can think of. So sometimes we must accept the presence of mystery that has no explanation. We are finite creatures. We may not understand what God is doing, nor may we be able to explain it. So we just must trust him. Psalms 29 and Psalm 99 go well with the words in Psalm 2, verse 9. In this light, I love the way the Psalms do such a nice job of reminding us of God's greatness. God is love, but he is no pushover, for he is also great and mighty and invincible. Have you ever asked yourself this question? How much are my prayers worth? What do they mean to God? Perhaps Revelation 8 verses 3 and 4 can help us know the answer. Also chapter 5 verse 8. 
In 9.6 of Revelation, John prophesies that those that in those days people will seek death and not find it. In my ministry as a care pastor, I have witnessed many situations where a loved one is in the process of dying. They are ready to go. The family has said their goodbyes, and they are also ready for their family member to go and to be with Jesus. But sometimes dying people linger for days and even weeks. In chapter 9, though, these aren't people on their deathbeds, but those whose time on earth has become sheer misery. They are tormented, and John writes, they will long to die, but death will flee from them. How awful must that be? In chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, in spite of all the awfulness that they are experiencing, the people still refuse to repent. That just doesn't make sense, does it? Because we, we speak of people hitting rock bottom, but, but even rock bottom is never a guarantee of repentance. It's not in our present time, and it won't be true in the days to come. Even the deepest of hardships and darkness won't lead us to the light if not for the intervention of the Holy Spirit. Because hard times don't save anyone. Only God's grace can do that. When we think of God as judge, it is common to view this only in negative terms. But those who know his judgment and rule are, are rejoicing when it's to come in chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. Why? Why are they rejoicing that judgment is coming? Well, this is a common theme in Revelation. In this book, we are reminded of the fruit of coming judgment, the riddance of all that is wrong with the universe. And unless God does that, there really is no reason to rejoice for any length of time. Without any promise of God ridding the universe of all that is wrong with it, we really have no hope of eternal peace. One thing I've said from the beginning of this plan is that the Bible is a redemption story. Revelation 12 verse 9 really shows this off where it refers to that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. And so we see things are coming full circle at this point. John is escorting us back to the Garden of Eden where darkness began, hinting at the wondrous fact that light, unending light, might be just around the corner. In chapter 12, verses 11 and 17, John uses the term, the word of their testimony, which is used four or five other times in the book of Revelation. Now, this is probably not a reference to one's own personal testimony, but to the testimony of Christ and the gospel. Sometimes this term is translated witness. It is the, uh, it's the act of testifying to something that is true, as the apostles did in the book of Acts. If we know Christ, we all do have a personal story, but in sharing that story, what this text reminds us of, we need to let our emphasis be on the work of Christ for all, not simply in us. And that's maybe the lesson we take away from this week is, are we sharing a testimony of what Jesus has done, what is true for all time? It's a good thing to think about as we finish up this week's reading. Next week, we go back to Job chapters 12 through 27, we will look at three Psalms, Psalm 100, Psalm 101, and Psalm 141, and we will, in Revelation, read chapters 13 through 17. So I hope you'll join us again next week for the five-day reading plan podcast. Have a great week, and keep reading. We are almost there. Talk to you next week.